I'm going to read to you Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. I ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, cause this word, cause this gospel to break into our hearts, to change us, to conform us, to break down the barriers and the walls and anything that separates us, that hinders us from being like Christ, from being conformed to the very image of the Son of God. Do this, we ask God, that you would be glorified in your church, that we would be a witness in this world to your glory, to your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing in this letter, and when we get to chapter 3 here, and he begins with these words, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It almost sounds like Paul is drawing this letter to a close. And then he says this, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, it's not really known if Paul is referring to something in this letter that he's repeating again, there's some evidence that it could be that. Or if Paul is referring to a general theme that he's written before, it could be that. Maybe it's both. Maybe it doesn't really matter because either way you want to look at this, it applies. And here's the principle that applies to our life, not just to the church at Philippi, but for us, this principle is true. That to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for your sake it is safe. It's not tedious, it's not tiresome, it's not grievous, it's not irksome. It is safe. Here's a truism. The fallen nature of man demands to be entertained. Would you rather be entertained or instructed? Well, you, before you answer that question, just in a general sense, I think we know what the answer is. That we would in many ways rather be entertained than instructed. We have whole Cities, we have whole regions that are built on entertainment. We could take the city of Las Vegas, for instance. 
My friends in Colorado, the Troutmans, talk about how the state of Colorado is being built on entertainment. That industry and different things that traditionally drove the economies there, such as mining and, and different things, forestry like that, that is now being replaced and entertainment is driving the economies in many, many places. Now, I'm not against entertainment. When the latest Star Wars movie comes out this coming month, I will go see it. And I will enjoy it. It will be great entertainment. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with entertainment. I'm saying, though, that we need to put everything in its proper place. And I am saying that we need to be careful as human beings because we gravitate toward those things that entertain us more so than the things that may instruct us. That is our fallen man. That is our fallen nature. We know this is true because Adam and Eve rejected the instruction of God in the garden because the idea of eating the fruit was more entertaining to them and they imagined what it would do for them instead of heeding the real instruction that God had given them. Why are we so entertainment driven? Because entertainment helps us escape our problems. Entertainment doesn't solve our problems. Entertainment doesn't deal with our problems. But we gravitate toward those things that entertain us because they help us escape our problems. We can go to a movie, whether it's a Star Wars fantasy science fiction movie or, or the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, or it could be a, a drama, it could be a mystery, it could be a western, it could be anything, whatever genre of movie you like. And we go to those things and, and it helps us escape. And sometimes we like to do that because we like to place ourselves in those time periods or in those situations. And we like to pretend as though, what if that was me living that? What if that was me fighting that giant or fighting that dragon or driving that spaceship and fighting that alien? And for two or three hours, we can escape reality and live in a fantasy. And we can forget our problems and we can forget our challenges. And for a period of time, we can pretend like those don't exist. The only problem is the movie's over, the lights come on, you've got to leave the theater and you've got to walk out into the daylight of the world and you've got to face your issues again. So entertainment... Nothing wrong with it, but entertainment doesn't help you face the issues of your life. It doesn't equip you to walk through and deal with the challenges, the real challenges you face. Yet, this is what instruction does. The Bible instructs us and it equips us to walk through the things that we face in life, the real things. It doesn't help us escape them. It helps us face them. It equips us to overcome them. The Proverbs make it clear that a fool despises instruction. And because to the fool, instruction, especially repeated, repetitious instruction, is burdensome, it's irksome, it's tiresome, it's grievous. I don't want to hear that again. Stop telling me that. I, I, I know that. I don't want to hear it. Just leave me in my denial. Just leave me alone. I don't want to hear the truth. It's not just our culture today, though that's on full display and easily discerned all around us. Man's lack of appetite for instruction amidst his hunger for entertainment is nothing new. We see the apostle dealing with that same thing in this very letter, in these very words that he writes here when he says, it's not tedious for me, it's not grievous for me to write the same thing, and for you it's safe. We see the prophets their words recorded in the Old Testament scriptures deal with the same issue when they, 
would go to Israel and they would tell Israel the truth and they would instruct Israel with the word of God and Israel would stone them, Israel would kill them, Israel would drive them away because they did not want to hear the instruction of God. It's really important that we do not become that person. His instruction, God's instruction to those willing to receive it is that for him to write the same thing, it's not grievous. Paul, when he writes this, his instruction to those willing to receive it is for their good. It's not something that should be grievous or tedious. It's for those who will receive the word of God and the instruction of God. And for those who would receive it, it is safe. Paul's aim, therefore, was not to entertain, but was to instruct. Paul was not trying to establish an audience, but a church. He was not making fans, he was making disciples. He was not seeking to make for himself a reputation, but just the opposite. In fact, in Philippians 2.7, Paul says, we need to be like Christ, who made himself of no reputation. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. He made himself of no reputation. Paul said, let that be your mindset. So Paul wasn't trying to make a reputation for himself, just the opposite. He sought to be like Christ and to make himself of no reputation. We know of the apostle Paul today, not because of his oratory skills or his great charisma. In fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, it was not my ability to speak well. In fact, I don't speak well. It wasn't my grand demeanor, my stature that was so impressive. In fact, Paul's stature was very small, church tradition tells us. His demeanor was of weakness and frailty. And he was not a good speaker. And he says to the Corinthians, I came to you in fear and in trembling. And it was not my ability as an orator to persuade you to believe in Christ. It was the power of God. Your faith is proof in the power of God. Because I didn't come as a salesman to persuade. I came as a messenger. And in weakness, I delivered the message. It was not the power of the messenger. It was the power of the message that your faith testifies to. It wasn't his skill as a speaker. It wasn't his charisma. It was God's calling upon his life. It was the calling of God and the power of the gospel, not Paul's ability to tickle men's ears that made the difference. As beloved as Paul was to those who were his disciples, to those churches that he was able to actually visit in person, though most of the churches Paul had an impact on, he was never even able to go there in person. He wrote letters from prison and they read his letters and they met the disciples that Paul made. And Paul impacted the world, not because he was able to go places and speak face to face with people, but because he was faithful to God and faithful to the gospel. It was the power of the message, even written from prison in Rome, that changed the world. Paul was beloved, but he was also hated and despised. The same gospel that endeared him to so many caused him to be hated by just as many. Now we should never seek to be hated or despised. We should always seek though to be true to God, true to his gospel. And that will determine whether we are revered or whether we are reviled in this world. 
Therefore, Paul was less concerned about the appeal of his message than the safety and the power of it and its instruction to the saints. The safety and the power of our message is not determined by our style or presentation. It's determined by the content. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. In that same sense, it is safe for those being saved, but it is deadly dangerous for those who reject it. You, Christian, are not here to receive entertainment by a church or a worship band or a preacher. You, Christian, are here to worship God, to be discipled and equipped for the work of ministry that we are all called to do. Whether you are standing in the pulpit or sitting in a pew, we all are called to the work of ministry. You are here to offer worship and to receive instruction in the God-ordained corporate context of the church as a member of the body of Christ to the end that his body would function together as one for salvation and glory. What God commanded us to do in assembling ourselves together on the Lord's Day cannot be done by yourself. A body is the assembly of all the members. An individual member is not a body. My hand is not a body. But my hand is part of the body. My foot is not a body. But my body is not complete without my foot or my hand. You as an individual do not make a body, but you are an integral part of the body. You are one member. And when we come together as different members, as we assemble together as the members of his body, there is the body. This is why when we come to this table week in and week out, we say the body of Christ is present. It's not present in the bread. The bread doesn't magically become his body. We don't believe that. That's why we're not Catholic in that sense. We're Catholic in the universal sense that we are part of the universal body of Christ. But we do not believe that bread literally becomes the body of Jesus. But we absolutely believe the body of Jesus is present at this table because you, member, are assembled together, and you are the body of Christ. His body is absolutely present here today. Not in the bread, but in you. And in those all around you, who by grace through faith have come to be saved. A body is the individual members assembled together picturing for us the unity and the oneness that every member has in Christ. And Christ is called the head of the body because he is that picture of oneness and unity. He is not a dismembered body. He is a unified, functioning body. In verse 3, Paul writes this, Rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Our rejoicing and our confidence is in Christ. It's not in our flesh. It's not in our outward condition. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not just talking about skin and bone. He's talking about what that skin and bone represents. He's talking about the natural man. He's talking about the natural order. We should never place our confidence in the natural man and the natural order. He says, place your confidence in Christ. He said, our rejoicing and our confidence is in Christ. It's not in our flesh. It's not in our outward condition or the natural order of things. 
It's not in our working. It's not in our law keeping. It is in Christ that we have confidence. It is in Christ that we have reason to rejoice. Our confidence and our rejoicing is not conditioned upon our circumstances. It is solely conditioned upon and secured in Christ. I'm going to go tomorrow and I'm going to conduct the service for my sister who passed away a week ago tomorrow. She passed away. Her body was racked with cancer and she suffered greatly the last months of her life. She suffered greatly for much of her life for various reasons. Most not of her own making. She had a son who died of muscular dystrophy at 33. She took care of him all of his life and most of that time she took care of him by herself because she was abandoned by her husband and his father. But yet, every time I went to see her, every time I would see my nephew, I never heard complaining. I never heard, woe is me. I never heard why I should feel sorry for him or her. All I ever saw was joy and faith and laughter. I never saw anger. I never saw bitterness, even toward the people that abandoned her and left her. How is that possible? Well, it's possible exactly how Paul tells us to do it here. To not put our confidence in the flesh, but to put our confidence in Christ. To rejoice in Christ. Not to rejoice because our life is problem-free. And not to be sorrowful because our life has problems. But to rejoice in Christ. Because life is filled with problems. Life is filled with pain. Life is filled with suffering. Regardless of how much it has touched you. I don't know how much you have suffered in life. Some suffer more than others. My sister suffered greatly for much of her life. Yet she did not allow her suffering to define who she was. She allowed Christ and her faith in Christ to define who she was in spite of her suffering. This is what Paul is telling us to do. Don't let your circumstances define who you are. You are defined by Christ. The condition of your life, the quality of your life, whether you have much suffering or little suffering, whether you have great joy because everything is great in the And the world is all that it should be. Or whether you feel like you have been cursed worse than Job. Our rejoicing is not dependent upon those things. It's not conditioned upon those things. Our rejoicing is conditioned upon Christ. You hear my words. But I can't talk you into believing that. And I'm not trying to talk you into believing that. I'm conveying a message to you. I'm conveying the gospel to you. The gospel says that we have hope beyond this life. We have hope beyond the condition of our life. We have hope beyond our present suffering. We have hope beyond our future suffering. We have hope beyond our past suffering. We have hope. Hope in Christ and our hope endures. It is eternal. It cannot, it will not pass away. Place your hope in Christ. Rejoice in Christ and place no confidence in the flesh.
in the midst of their persecution for the gospel, while Paul is experiencing his own persecution, his own imprisonment for the gospel, he writes this letter to the saints at Philippi. And he reminds them repeatedly to rejoice in Christ. For Christ alone, not their circumstances in life, not their ability to keep the law, determines their reason to rejoice or their confidence. It is Christ who is their reason to rejoice. It is Christ who is their confidence. It is the same for us today. Our reason to rejoice, our confidence is rooted and grounded in someone that transcends the conditions of this life and of this world. We don't like to talk about it, but every time I do a funeral, I'm reminded. Every time I go visit someone in a hospital, every time I hear of someone sick and suffering, I'm reminded that death is going to come to us all, somehow, some way. We are not going to escape this world apart from death in some form or fashion. If Jesus were to return right now, we would all be transformed. Our bodies as we know it would die in that sense. You understand what I'm saying? We will all be changed. We will all be transformed. We will all, we must all experience the death that will lead to our transformation. You have reason to rejoice. You have reason to be confident if you are trusting in Jesus. You have no reason to fear the death of your body because you have already overcome death in Jesus Christ. If you are saved by grace through faith today in Jesus Christ, death has no power over you. Your body may cease to function but death cannot take hold of you death has been defeated by the one who won your victory Jesus Christ you have reason to rejoice you have reason to be confident as you trust Jesus and the power of his salvation that was gifted to you by grace through faith in verse 7, Paul writes this, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. If anyone had reason to be confident in their own self, it was the Apostle Paul. And he begins to list all the reasons why he had a reason to be confident if we're going to put our confidence in our flesh. Yet all the things that he had considered gain, all the reasons for his confidence in the flesh, he counted loss. Listen to verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all Things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What Paul is literally saying is that his conversion and faith in Christ resulted in him suffering the loss of all things. Paul is not just using hyperbole here, Paul is not just painting a metaphorical picture. Paul is literally communicating, conveying to the saints that my conversion and my faith in Jesus Christ literally resulted in me losing everything. All the things that he thought were gain were actually rubbish. And he gladly suffered the loss of all things in order that he would gain Christ. 
it's hard for us to understand what Paul is conveying here because we live, quite frankly, as bad as we may think it is, we still live in a nation where we're not going to be shunned. We're not going to be denied food, shelter, a job, a means to make a living because we confess Christ. There are parts of the world where people are treated that way. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to be given a place to lay your head. You're not going to be able to associate with those around you if you name Jesus as your Savior. We are blessed to live in a nation where Christianity is so normal that people consider themselves Christian just by virtue of being born on American soil. And trust me, that does not make you a Christian. Paul, when he experienced his conversion and his subsequent faith in Christ, those closest to him were now alienated. He became unclean. He became the one that you were forbidden to associate with. He became the traitor. He became the one who turned his back on God. And if you can imagine, church, living in a culture where everyone that celebrated you, everyone that embraced you now wants nothing to do with you. This is what Paul is talking about. He lost everything that he may gain Christ. And he didn't lose it grudgingly he lost it gladly because he was given a revelation of who Christ truly is. What things are gained to you that you are afraid to lose? Where is your rejoicing and your confidence? Is it in the flesh? Is it in the outward world, the outward things? Or is it in Christ? These are questions we need to think about. Is the gain you have in Christ worth the loss of all other things? Should God determine such a thing for you? As He did with the Apostle Paul? Or Job? Or Joseph? Or Jeremiah? Jeremiah preached for almost 25 years and was out of hand rejected by his people. And the only reason they did not kill him is because God would not allow them to take his life. Though everything they did to him could have, but by the grace of God. Or Moses, or any of the many others, This is where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we trust Christ with our life to that extent? Or do we believe that that, that level of trust is only for those Bible characters we read about or some other person or some other believer in some other part of the world? Surely God doesn't call us to that kind of faith here in America, or does He? I will confess to you that I am convicted by my own message and that I fear that I am far too comfortable with the things that are gained to me. Paul writes this in verse 8. At the end of, his, of this verse, that I may gain Christ. When I find myself too comfortable with the things that are gained to me, I am reminded that what is most important, most valuable, most glorious, most excellent is that 
which I have gained in Christ. Paul was able to count as rubbish all things that were gained to him because he was given a revelation of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. The world's problem, listen, the world's problem is that they cannot see the excellence of Christ. In fact, Jesus says in John 3, 3 that they can't even see the kingdom. They can't even climb up on the mountain and see the kingdom from afar off because they're blind to it. Jesus said unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom. The world surely can't see Christ. They can't even see the kingdom, much less see Christ. So the world doesn't know the excellence. The problem with believers is that we are too easily distracted by what appears to be gain, but in reality is rubbish compared to the excellence that is Christ. It's not that we should never seek to gain things in this world. Listen, I stood in my house last night. Last night we had dinner in my home for the first time in months since the tornado ripped up my house. And I stood in that house. It's not finished yet, but I stood there. And I was just so thankful to God. Because what seemed like such a horrible disaster on February 20th has turned into such a blessing from God. I would have never done what was done to my house. I would never have been able to do to my house what I've been able to do had God not sent the tornado. But I stood there and I was so very thankful that God has worked all of these things together for good. But I did that knowing that there must be other people who can't say the same thing. There's probably still other people that don't have their house today who've lost so much more than what I lost. I've just lost parts of my house. So it's not that we should not desire gain, however you want to define that. It's that we should see and know the excellence that is Christ and everything, whatever we gain, must be measured against that. I am thankful for my house that I have much more room for my growing family. Now 10 grandchildren. And it would be naive for me to think that that's probably all I'm going to get because I just know I'm going to get some more. And that excites me and that just blesses me. But everything is held in relation to the excellence that we have in Christ. It's not that we should never seek to gain things in this world or appreciate all that we have gained, be they material, emotional, or spiritual. It is that we must keep all things in their proper place and in their proper perspective. There is nothing more valuable, nothing more excellent than to gain Christ. For anything God graces us to receive and hold, we should be most thankful and joyful. We rejoice in all of His grace and we hold all things in relation to the gain and the glory that He has given to us in Christ. So rich or poor, fat or lean, in abundance or in simplicity, Christ is our treasure. And Christ is the reason we have to confidently rejoice. In gaining Christ, we gain a righteousness that is not our own. It's not a righteousness gained through the law 
or through works of the flesh. It is a righteousness that is alien to us. It is a righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not our own. It's His. He gives it to us. Listen to the last two verses here in this chapter that I'm going to read to you today. Verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection in the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know Him. That I may be conformed to His death that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We see a pattern true to all of us in life. We live and think we're going to gain when in reality we are losing. Very often we live our lives thinking we're gaining when in reality we, we could be losing. If we count those things as gain that are really not gain, then we may feel like we're gaining. I got the bigger house. I got the better job. I got the greater salary. I may feel like I'm gaining, but maybe I'm not. But if I'm able to gain and hold my gain in its proper place and see it, in relation to the excellency that is Christ, then I will never be in danger of allowing my gain to become lost. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? Because whatever I may count gain, anything other than Christ is going to fall short of His glory. And I may enjoy it, I may utilize it, I may be blessed by it, but it will never compare to Christ and His glory. And if I understand that, then I will never be captured by those things. I'll never be captured by the things out in the world that are tempting me to lust after them and to seek after them and to live for them and to spend my time and treasure and talents trying to capture those Shiny things that satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When I hold all things in relation to Christ and His glory and His excellence, there's nothing in this world that can compare. And I will never be in danger of being taken captive by lesser things. We live and think we're gaining when in reality we are losing. We're given a revelation of Christ only to find that what we considered gain is in reality rubbish and we suffer the loss of all things. We can see Christ. We can seek to regain what is lost or we can seek to discover the true value of the true treasure that is Christ. Did you hear me? We can seek to regain what is lost. This is what happens when we become complacent in our faith, apathetic in our faith. We start to yearn for the things of the world. And we begin to try to regain those things that we once counted as loss for the excellence of Christ. And those things that should not appeal to us in that way become appealing. If we find ourselves doing that, we need to run to the cross. We need to run to Jesus. We need to run to that instrument that will kill us, that will crucify us, that will put everything in its proper perspective. That's why there is no gospel without the message of the cross. If there is no cross, there is no gospel. Because only the cross brings us back to reality. Only the cross gives us eyes to see what is truly gain and what is truly rubbish. Without the message of the cross, the world looks really good. And we 
In our human nature, in our fallen nature, we know how to justify our sinfulness. Our first parents did it very well. But thankfully, God's not fooled by our self-deception and justification. He knows what is true. And he has put the cross front and center so that the cross separates and cuts away and exposes what in reality is truth. The cross removes the blinders from our eyes and helps us to see that what we thought was gain is really just a, a pile of rubbish. This is the good news of the cross. It is the end of us and it is the beginning of our life in Christ. It is the end of blindness, and it is the beginning of living with true sight. That journey of discovery, of discovering the value of the true treasure that is in Christ, will necessarily, it's not an option, it is necessary that it take us through the cross so that we may experience the loss that comes through being crucified with Him. It is our death in the cross and the loss it brings that leads to all we gain in the power of His life and His resurrection. This is why Paul's cry was to know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death that He may, by any means of His grace, of God's grace, not by Paul's means, but by God's means of grace that God would bring Paul to attain to the resurrection, to know the power of the resurrection. There is our hope, not only in this life and all that we're able to gain here, but hope in His resurrection, hope in the resurrection from the dead, hope in the life eternal. This is going to pass away one day because this is under the curse. This as we know it. What we see and what we don't realize how cursed it is, one day we will truly see. It's just like the little story I read to the kids. The leaves look green, but they're really not green. The earth looks beautiful, but it's really not beautiful compared to what it's going to look like when the curse and when death has been removed. We cannot even imagine what we will see what we will know, and what we will experience. We can't imagine that. But God says it's okay if you can't imagine it. Just know that it's true. Know that it's coming. Know that it's real. Just like the trees, the leaves look green, but they're really not green. One day you will see them for what they truly are. People drive thousands of miles to go to New England to see the leaves turn vibrant, brilliant red. I was privileged to go there one time on our 20th wedding anniversary. Somebody gave us tickets to fly up. And we went to Albany, New York and drove over into Vermont. And we saw the beauty that everybody talked about. People, just cars, lines of cars driving, just looking at leaves on trees. Kind of silly, isn't it? People flying in from all over the world just to drive around and look at leaves on trees. But it's really not silly. Because whether those people realize it or not, they're looking at that for a reason. There's something inside of them that yearns for beauty, that yearns for something that is just so spectacular. And it's not something of this cursed earth that we really yearn for. It's something that is 
transcends the curse of this earth. It's something that we can't quite put our finger on. We can drive to a state and, and look at a tree and say, oh, isn't it beautiful, spectacular? I wish I had trees like that. You do have trees like that here. You just don't have eyes to see them. Say, no, Pastor Jeff, you're wrong. My trees don't look anything like that. Oh, yes, they do. You just don't have eyes to see it. One day you'll see it. One day when the curse is gone, utterly, completely. One day when death has been put underfoot, you will see it if you are in Christ. Don't place your hope in what you can see now. Place your hope in what God has told you to know, even though you can't see it. This is what the cross does. The cross crucifies us. It kills us. It gives us eyes to see. This is why Paul cried out to know the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death. There is our hope. For in that ultimate day of resurrection, all of God's enemies will be underfoot, even the last enemy, which is death. The resurrection seals the fate of death Death's ultimate defeat. The resurrection of Christ has sealed death's fate. Death has been defeated. He is just waiting to be utterly and completely put underfoot. In that day, in that glory, we will see the things that held us captive, the things that drew us away from Christ and tempted us to seek their gain. In that day, in that fullness of His sight and glory, we will see how weak and pitiable and empty those things of this world truly are. We will know the exceeding excellence of all that is in ours in Christ, and we will rejoice with the fullness of joy that is unspeakable in this present world. Do not put your confidence in the things of this world and in your flesh. Put your confidence in Christ and rejoice in Him in all things. Be willing to lose your rubbish and yourself that you may gain Christ. I want to invite you to come to the table. As you learn, this is a table of thanksgiving. Though you can't fully comprehend it, though you can't fully imagine it, we are to come to this table knowing that the gain we have in Christ is true. Come to the table and receive his grace and know that he has taken your sin and shame and nailed it with him upon the cross. Come confident knowing that what is counted as loss is your gain in Christ. Christian, come to the table. I want to invite you to stand. Here's your charge today, church. Do not live in fear of what you may lose. Live in confidence in what you have gained in Christ. Do not seek to gain the approval of this world. Seek to gain Christ. Seek to know the excellence of all that has been given to us in Him. Seek to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death that you may know and attain to the power of His resurrection. Seek Christ alone and seek His glory. Amen.